You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Hola. Buenos dias. Como están ustedes? Wrong country. For those of you who don't know, uh, a team of us just got back from Guatemala actually really, really late last night, uh, around 1.30. So, and, and full disclosure, like I'm not feeling 100% at the moment. So if I do have to run off stage mid-service, that's why. Uh, that's way more information than you want from your pastor on a Sunday morning. In all seriousness, uh, it is really good to be home, and I am really excited to be with family this morning. Uh, Before we jump into our teaching, into our sermon this morning, I want to take just a moment and wish you a sincere and genuine happy Mother's Day. As uh, my wife said just a few moments ago, we believe that motherhood and womanhood in general is a high and holy calling of God, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and The women in my life and and the women in our church are some of the most strong, resilient, spirit-filled people I know. And so we are grateful for you and we honor you. And at the same time, recognizing that there are people in our church who have lost their moms in the last year. There are people in our church who have lost kids in the last year. There are people in our church who are wrestling through years of infertility. There are other people in our church who are expecting and due in a few months from now. And so motherhood is a complicated and messy and beautiful and redemptive and kind of all of that in one. And so for many of us, it means a lot of different things. And so one of the things that we wanted to do today to honor moms specifically and honor just kind of the vast diversity of journeys around motherhood is uh, you'll notice on your way out after service, uh, we have a table set up, and there are these Chinese paper lanterns that you kind of light on fire, and then they fly away. Um, and what we wanted to do is we want to invite you to take one of these. And it doesn't matter kind of where you're at in your journey, but just take one for your family and take a Sharpie and a card. And on this card, there's some instructions. But what we want to invite you to do tonight or a, a night that works for your family is just to take the Sharpie and write what motherhood means to you. And so maybe it's a letter to your mom honoring her. Maybe it's a lament, just grieving what motherhood means to you. Maybe it's a celebration. Maybe it's all of the above. Take this, and and maybe you want to draw pictures. Like Maybe you want to have to have your kids draw pictures. But whatever you want to do, uh, write something around motherhood on this, and then just light it off as a way of honoring motherhood, grieving motherhood, celebrating it, or whatever it means to you tonight. And uh, let's, uh, let's just be a church that honors the women and the mothers in our life. Does that sound good? So feel free on your way out to take one of these with you. Okay, now on to the sermon. Uh, I would love, we're in week three right now of winning the war in your mind. And this is a series that we've been in that is just basically talking about how all of us, we all have battles that go on and kind of rage in our minds. And we actually believe that the Bible, that scripture gives us an incredibly important roadmap for winning those wars that we all struggle with. And uh, so I want to begin with this statement. You may have heard me say this before. I've said some version of it before. It's this. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. 
The other day, I was on the stair stepper at the gym, and uh, usually when I'm at the gym, I, I take my glasses off so I can't see anything. I'll put a podcast in my ears, and I'll really get into the zone when I'm there. But this particular day, I have my glasses on so I could see the, the wall of TVs in front of me, right? And there were, there were five different news channels on, all of them covering the exact same story. And I say same in, in quotation marks because some of you know where I'm headed with this. The story they were covering was Elon Musk buying Twitter. Okay, so you have like Fox News saying one thing, CNN saying another, MSNBC, so on and so forth. And so one TV station says like, hero of free speech, Elon Musk buys Twitter. The next one says Elon Musk loves free speech except for all the people he's blocked on Twitter. <laughs> the next one says Musk takes on Twitter, not all heroes wear capes. And then the last one, selfish billionaire Elon Musk hates puppies. <laughs> how is it, how is it that five different news channels can cover the exact same story and yet tell a very, very different story? Two words, cognitive bias, cognitive bias. What this means, and psychologists have studied this for decades, is that every single one of us have stories that we tell ourselves, stories that actually deviate from reality. Because we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. See, cognitive bias is the frames through which we see the world. Every single one of us have a lens through which we see the world, and it's not always accurate. For a lot of us, it's built on the family of origin that we came from, the experiences that we've had in our lives. For many of us, it's the wounds and the traumas that we've experienced. The, the reality is every single one of us have a lens, a distorted lens through which we see the world. We all bring cognitive bias to the equation. There's this John F. Kennedy quote that, that I love that I think sums up this concept really, really well. This is what he says. He says, For the great enemy of the truth is very often not the lie deliberate, contrived and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, unrealistic. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. In other words, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And the problem is it's really easy to see cognitive bias in other people, isn't it? It's really easy to see the cognitive bias that exists in other people. It's a lot more difficult. It's a lot more challenging to see it in ourselves. Cognitive bias impacts our lives every single day. It's, it's how a boss can give two employees the exact same feedback as each other. And one of the employees takes that as helpful and constructive and goes away and becomes better because of it. And the other one says, oh, you want to talk feedback? I got some feedback for you, boss, right? And they get really defensive and they receive it a completely different way because every single one of us doesn't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. We all bring stuff to the table. It's how two people can walk into the same church. And the first believes Christians are absolute hypocrites. And all churches care about is money. And they have a lens through which they see the church. And, and it's how another person can walk in and they can see the exact same church. And they can say, yeah, there's a whole lot of people that are not perfect in this place. But I can still see God moving despite the imperfection, despite the brokenness. Because every single one of us have a lens through which we see the world. Even, even the word mom. 
right, brings up an entirely kind of vast array of emotions and feelings and thoughts for us because we all have cognitive bias, all have stories we tell ourselves. So why is this the case? Like, why do we have cognitive bias? Here's why. Because every single one of us have things in our lives that have happened to us that we cannot control. Every single one of us have had experiences and traumas and difficulties that we cannot control. And so what we do to protect ourselves is we try to control the narrative around those experiences. And that's not always a bad thing. That's a helpful thing. For some of us, that's meant survival for us. But cognitive bias can lead us to a place where if we're not careful, if we're not actually willing to enter into it and identify it in ourselves, it can, it can bring us to a place where a survivor blames themselves for the abuse they're experiencing. Where a narcissist can believe they are the victim. It can lead us to a place where I won't ever take any responsibility for my own weaknesses and faults and the stuff that has happened to me it's why we can walk through a painful season and believe God is so distant and so far because all I saw was the pain in that moment. We don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. How might your life change if you invited God to reframe some of those biases you walk through the world with? How might your family dynamic look different? How might your ex explanations of past events and traumas change if you actually invited God to reframe some of those experiences that you've had in your life? See, here's what I know is true. That you cannot control what has happened to you. You can't. I can't. None of us can. None of us can control the stuff that we have walked through. But God is obsessed with reframing our stories. God is, I mean, he, like all throughout the scripture, he takes broken and ugly and painful and traumatic things and he turns them into beauty. He brings beauty out of the ashes. This is what God does. I love how, I love how Paul, and this is a guy that we've been talking about a lot in this series. I love how Paul describes this in Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. This is what Paul says. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. In other words, in all of these things that are out of my control, in every circumstance, no matter how outside of my grasp it might feel, this is what he says, I have learned the secret. I have learned how to reframe my story. I have learned how to reframe my experiences. I have learned the secret of placing plenty, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is actually one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And spoiler, it is not about you winning a football game or passing a test. It's actually about God's ability to reframe some of the most painful things in our lives, some of the most difficult things in our lives for his glory and our benefit. You see, when Paul wrote these words, to the church in Philippi. His intention was to advance the gospel in Rome. He had a plan in mind to go advance the gospel in Rome. You know what his plan was? His plan was to go to Rome. It was to get into the ears of all of the people of influence, all of the government leaders, and persuade them so that from that place of influence, the gospel would spread to the Roman world from a place of power and influence. The problem is Paul didn't enter Rome from a place of influence. He entered Rome from a place of incarceration. 
His story looked way different than he intended. When he got to Rome, it was not to share Jesus with government officials. He went there as a prisoner. He was locked up under house arrest, chained, chained to a rotating contingent of guards, day in and day out, a guard being, being swapped out for another one. He was awaiting a possible execution. His circumstances when he wrote these words were not what he thought. They were out of his control. And Paul prayed for an opportunity over and over again, and it simply was not happening. Circumstances are always out of our control. There are stuff that so many of us have walked through that have reminded us repeatedly throughout our lives that we don't have all that much control over anything in this life. You know, if I'm Paul and I'm writing this letter from a prison in Rome to a church in Philippi, if I am writing this letter, this is how I might write this letter if I was him. And this is how he could have written this letter. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me really sucks. Don't go to the slide yet, Heather. Really sucks. I wanted to spread the good news to preaching to government officials, but that did not happen. This is Brad's version, not Paul's version. I don't want people to get confused just yet. As a result of this hell I've been through, I've decided prayer doesn't work and I'm never going to church again. That's what he could have wrote. That's what I wonder if some of us might have wrote, being in this place where our plan didn't go to according to what we wanted it to be. Like, you laugh, but, but how many of us do this, right? We have a plan for our lives. It doesn't go according to plan. Something diverts it. And we don't know what to do with that. Like maybe you wanted to get a job. You had your, dream, your eye on a dream job. And, and in order to get there, you needed to get a degree for that job. And you get the degree, but the job falls through and you don't end up getting the job. What do you do in those circumstances? Or maybe you, you planned on being married by now. You had a plan for your life. You wanted to be married by age 30 and you're 35 and it has not happened. What do you do in those moments? Or maybe you did get married. You found Mr. or Miss Wright, and things went south, and you find yourself in a very different situation today than you ever imagined for your life. Maybe you've been praying for years for that prodigal kid in your family, and they still have not come home. Every single one of us knows what it feels like to live with circumstances beyond our control, out of our control. And for many of us, we felt like giving up in those seasons. We've told our own stories of how unlovable we are, how distant God is, and we've isolated ourselves. This is all the way in which our stories have been framed. Paul couldn't control what happened to him. He couldn't control that he was entering Rome, not from a place of influence, but from a place of incarceration. He could not control that he had a guard chained to him, that he was waiting execution. All of those things were beyond his control. But I want you to watch what he actually writes, not Brad's version, but what Paul actually writes to this church in Philippi as he's in chains. This is what he says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
you see how he's reframing his situation? He doesn't have control over his situation, but he's choosing to see his situation through a different lens, a different set of eyes. Paul was saying, I had a plan, but God had a better plan. You see, this is a whole different way to advance the gospel than what I was thinking. You see, I thought I was going to go to government officials at the top of the totem pole, but instead, I have a different guard chained to me every single eight hours, like they're just on rotation over and over. And you know what they're hearing that whole time? They're hearing the gospel, and they're responding, and they're doing something with it, and they're taking it into their context, and it's changing things. They have no choice but to listen to me tell them about Jesus. And they think I'm the prisoner. (laughs) God is moving. And not only that, but the church. The church is seeing me in prison, and they are feeling all the more emboldened and empowered to go preach this good news to the Roman Empire. My imprisonment may not be great for me right now, but God is doing something with it. So how do we go about doing this in our own lives? Like, how do we go about doing this work of reframing? Because I'll be honest with you, this is a discipline. This is a day-in and day-out discipline of looking at our lives with different lenses and different eyes. And it is not easy, but it's worth it. So I want to introduce you to another new term. All of us have heard the term collateral damage. But what about collateral goodness in our lives? I think this is one of the most important things that any of us could learn to begin seeing in our lives, collateral goodness. That in the midst of everything that we have walked through, everything that we have experienced, everything that runs kind of rampant in our minds, all of the cognitive bias, that God's goodness is evident if we're looking for it. That God's goodness, as we sang, I mean, we lifted our hands and we sang these words just a few minutes ago. And and my job here is to ask you, do you actually believe these words that we're singing? To to begin looking for the goodness of God in the circumstances of our lives. Because it's there if you're willing to look for it. My wife and I, before I was a pastor, were wedding photographers together. Some of you know that about us, some of you don't. My wife's still a wedding photographer. Uh, I'm not anymore. I'm a pastor now, obviously. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I'll never forget, we were scheduled to photograph a wedding together on January, uh, 11, 2014. And, uh, a few days before we were scheduled to photograph this wedding, we got a call from the bride and groom that they had broken up, that they wanted to cancel the wedding and, uh, that they didn't need our services anymore. Now, I'll say this. On one hand, we were really sad for this couple, right? We were just grieving for them like it's a very difficult and sad thing to experience. But on the other hand, like, I'll be honest, we were pretty, like, bummed about the lost contract and the money loss and all of that stuff, too. Is that okay to say? Like, I don't think it was a greedy thing. Like, it just, like, it was a significant amount of money that we were going to lose out on because of this cancellation, And so I remember just saying, like, on that day, just a few days before the wedding, like, really, God? Like, why would this happen to us right now? Like, really? Like, are you serious? And it wasn't, you know, the end of the world, but, like, really, that kind of sucks. But here's what I didn't know at the time. Here's what I didn't know that week that the wedding got canceled. I didn't know that the day before that wedding, my grandfather was going to pass away. 
I didn't know that at the time. And I didn't know that it would be the first family member that was close that I would lose, and I wasn't ready for it. Like a punch of overwhelming grief to the gut, it hit hard. And it wasn't until the day after that my grandfather passed away, on the day that we were supposed to go to Detroit, that we were supposed to shoot this wedding, that it hit me. There is no way I would be able to shoot a wedding on this day. No way. Like, like I am grieving. My head is reeling and spinning. You see, the wedding being canceled was a blessing in disguise. Like, even though it sucked in the moment, there was collateral goodness. Nothing about that situation, losing a grandfather, having a wedding canceled, nothing from a worldly set of eyes would see anything good out of that. But eyes that are willing to reframe, eyes that are willing to see the collateral goodness of God in the midst of that loss, like I was able to be more present with family that day, to grieve, to be with my grandma to sing hymns as a family, to mourn, to rest. All of a sudden, that wedding getting canceled was reframed for me. Now, here's what I know. Not every situation that we walk through is that clear cut. Right? That's a pretty easy way in which to see kind of a reframed perspective. Most of the stuff that we walk through is a lot more difficult to see that. A lot of the stuff I've walked through has been a lot more difficult to see the goodness of God in. But here's, here's what I want to say to you. I promise you that if you begin looking for it in every area of your life, you'll start to see it. You'll start to see his goodness at work in even the most difficult situations. It's kind of like this. If I tell you not to think about elephants, like if I say, don't think about elephants, don't you dare think about elephants, don't think about elephants, don't think about elephants, don't think about their trunks or the weird noise they make or all of, don't think about the smell, don't think about elephants. What are you thinking about? Elephants. I'm not comparing God to an elephant, but what I am saying is like, that's what Paul is teaching us to do here. He's teaching us how to see the collateral goodness of God in every area of our life, no matter if we're brought low, no matter if we're brought high. Again, Philippians 4, 12, and 13 says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He has learned how to find the collateral goodness of God in his life. Have you? Have you learned? Are you looking for the collateral goodness of God in your life? Are you looking for it? Are you looking for God moving and God working? Because that's the most powerful tool you have in, in reframing your story. Like, like if God can reframe a Roman execution device, the greatest symbol of shame in the Roman Empire, a cross into a symbol of victory that people in this room are wearing around their necks today, who are you to think that he cannot reframe some things in your story? That's what he does. That's who he is. And so here's what I want to do is I just want to offer you a few kind of practical ways to begin doing this in your life. A few disciplines that if, you, if you're willing to put these into practice, I promise you they will begin to change the way you see your world. The first one is this, that we thank God for what he didn't do. 
that we thank God for what he didn't do. For me, that, that wedding getting canceled is the perfect example of that, right? God, I thank you for the fact that you did not allow me to go shoot that wedding that day, even if it was painful, even if it was difficult in that moment. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you didn't do. There's all kinds of areas. Thank you, God, for not allowing me to get that job. Thank you, God, for not allowing me to to marry that person. By the way, like, this is funny, but um, the, the couple that broke up, this bride ended up getting married to the right guy a few years later, and Sam was able to shoot their wedding, and it was this beautiful celebration, and you better believe this bride was thanking God for what he didn't do, right? Like, we thank God for what he didn't do. That's a discipline. That's a practice that some of us need to get into. The second one here is this, that we discipline ourselves to look for God's goodness, we discipline ourselves to look for God's goodness, even in the little things. So I love my mom, who is here today, and uh, she didn't know I was going to talk about her, but I'm going to tease her a little bit just for, just for a minute here. So there's this kind of running joke that we tease my mom about, and um, Sam and I will tease my mom about it too. And it's this whole thing that anytime my mom finds a good parking spot, like at the grocery store, at a mall, anything, like if it's a close parking spot, she'll say, thank you, Lord. Like, Every, anybody else, thank you, Lord. And here's the thing, like, does God really care about you getting a close parking spot? I don't know. Like, some of us, to be honest, need a further parking spot so we can walk more, right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. So anytime my mom and I, or my wife and I now get a good parking spot, we'll say, thank you, Lord. I, I will say this. If you are a mom with three young kids towing them into a grocery store, a close far- parking spot is a major blessing. I will say that. The point is this. You see what you're looking for. My mom sees God's goodness in the little things, like a close parking spot. Are you looking for God's goodness in the little things? Because if you're willing to look for God's goodness in the little things like parking spots or warm temperatures outside or whatever it might be, if you're willing to look for God's goodness in the little things, to thank him for the goodness in the little things, then when you walk through the bigger things, the harder things, the more traumatic and the more painful and the more difficult seasons, you will have an easier time seeing God's goodness in those things. You will. And so so are you disciplining yourself to look for God's goodness in the little things? Because here's what I know is true. God's collateral goodness is there in the midst of the divorce you walk through. It's there. God's collateral goodness is there in the midst of the diagnosis. It's there. God's collateral goodness is there in the grief and the loss. I can't tell you how or necessarily where. It's different from person to person, family to family, but it is there if you are willing to look for it. And then the last kind of principle here, the last kind of practical way is we preframe our future to look for God's goodness. We preframe our future to look for God's goodness. And, and we actually, we preframe our future all the time. Like, how many of you maybe are driving into work, maybe it's a job you don't like, and you kind of already dread the day ahead before you ever even get to work? Nobody. Cool. I do sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. I love my job. <laughs> oh, man. 
maybe, maybe it's a difficult conversation, right? Like maybe there's some tension in a relationship and you pre-fight with the person in your mind before you ever get there, right? You come up with all of the points that you're going to make and all of the counterpoints and you're ready to go. And we do this all the time. We pray, pre I'm sorry, I'm just going back to what I just, oh man, I love you guys. Thank you for being a church where I can say stuff like that. We pre-frame our future all the time. What if we pre-framed our future to look for God's collateral goodness? Like, what if we pre-framed our future in a way that says, God, like, you're going into work, you say, God, thank you that I get to experience your strength when I feel weak, when I feel incapable, when I feel unable. God, you've equipped me to do everything you've called me to do today. Rather than a bad day, I'm going to look for your goodness all over it, no matter what the day brings. That's what it means to preframe the future. Maybe you're walking into a, a scary doctor's appointment, right? It's this moment where you're getting ready to receive the results of a test. And some of you know this, this tension moment, this, this moment of just like, God, what are you going to do in this right now? Preframing your future before you ever receive the results sounds just like this. God, I believe you are able to heal this diseased body. But even if you do not, you are good. You are wholly good, collaterally good, and you are with me. Friends, the, the stakes are high in learning how to do this in our lives. The stakes are high in learning to reframe our stories in light of God's goodness. In fact, this is what Paul says, and this is the scripture I want to close with today, but this is what Paul says is at stake when we actually don't learn how to do this. In the same exact letter to the same exact church, this is what he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Right? They haven't learned to reframe their stories in light of God's goodness, his provision, his presence. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, what Paul is saying here is there are two types of people in this world. There are two types of people in this church. There are two types of people in your family. There are those whose stories have been reframed by Jesus, and there are those who haven't. There are those whose futures have been pre-framed by Jesus, and there are those who haven't. There are those who live as friends of the cross, and there are those who live as enemies of the cross, and both types of people can be found in the church. Which type will you be? You know, we're going to share stories in the weeks ahead of, of Guatemala, but I just want to share one that really stuck out to me that kind of, I don't know, flavored kind of the lens my whole last week. Our, our trip leader, who is a guy that lives here in Grand Rapids, but he's from Guatemala. He, he knows the community well that we we're in. He said this the first night we were there, and I'll never forget this. He said, here's what I want to encourage you to do, team, all week long. He said, I want you to look for hope where there should not be hope. I want you to look for light 
where there should not be light. Because when you are looking for it, you will find it. You will see it. And so in neighborhoods overrun by gang violence, look for hope because it's there and we saw it. In nursing homes where elderly people have been forgotten and abandoned, look for hope. And we saw a church stepping in to care for them. In neighborhoods where drug lords run the show, look for hope. We see kids being snatched out of that life and into relationship with Jesus. In communities where government corruption is destroying people's lives, look for hope it's there. And guess what? When our team was looking for it, we saw it all over the place. And the same thing is true in your life, that you will see God's collateral goodness in places that will amaze you and astound you by simply beginning to look for it. Can we be a church that does that? Can we be people whose stories are reframed and healed and rewritten because we are looking for God's goodness all over them? Let me offer a prayer, and then we're going to respond. And I want us to go all out and worship for our King this morning. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for the little things of today breath in our lungs, a sun in the sky. God, for moms who walk through today grieving or women who walk through today grieving and desiring to be a mom, God, I pray that they experience your goodness even, even as something as simple as a hug from someone in their church family this morning, God. God, your goodness is in our lives. We can't control this life, but we can control where we see you working. And so, God, I pray that you will reveal yourself to people in ways they have never seen you work this coming week. I pray this is a discipline that we can put into practice in our lives as we go to work on Monday morning. I pray this is a, a discipline that we can put in our lives and practice in our lives when we lose someone we love or we walk through a painful season of loss and grief. Because God, you are a God who turns ashes into beauty, who replaces our mourning with a crown of joy. You rewrite stories. You reframe stories all the time. God, I pray that you will reframe ours because we begin looking for you at work. And this morning we pray this all in the name of one name name above every other name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess you are Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen.